you were to ask the world who Jesus is, you might get a variety of answers, and we'll see a few in our passage today. Hear God's word from Mark chapter 3. We'll start in verse 20, and we'll finish in verse 35. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, All sins will be forgiven the children of man in whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Thanks be to God. The world will tell you maybe that Jesus is a good moral teacher. If you ask the world, they'll say, maybe he's a prophet, one of many. Or he's a rabbi whose followers exaggerated stories about him after the fact. It's interesting, we don't often today hear people call Jesus just outright crazy. Because there's this general respect for other people's religions. It's a shallow respect, it doesn't mean much. Jesus is not looking for a shallow cultural respect for who he is. He's not looking for a cultural nod, or as they say back home, a bless your heart. He demands utmost respect, honor, submission, and complete worship. If we do not worship him as Lord, we may not say it with our words, but we're calling him either a lunatic or a liar. You've heard of this trilemma. Three options. Either he's lunatic, or he's a liar, or he is who he claims to be. He is Lord. This was first found in the writings of John Duncan, a Scottish pastor in the 1800s, but it's been made famous by C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity. This lunatic, liar, Lord, trilemma. Let me read a snippet here from Mere Christianity to get us thinking this way. C.S. Lewis says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. 
A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up as a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now, it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. This is who we see Jesus to be in our passage today, even though his own family calls him a lunatic and his own people call him a liar. We'll see that he is truly Lord. Now, Mark is uh, one more preliminary here. Mark is using a literary technique that he uses nine times in the book, but this is our first time encountering one. It's called, as some people call it, an intercalation. That's a fancy word. Other scholars call it a sandwich. I like that one better. What, you, what Mark does is he takes a story and he breaks it into two parts and he puts another story in the middle. And what you then have to do is read the stories into each other and figure out how they interpret each other. And that's exactly what we encounter in our text today. We have Jesus with the crowd in the house, probably Simon and Andrew's house. And his family comes to him, says he's out of his mind. And push pause, and then you go to the other story where you have the scribes coming down from Jerusalem saying Jesus is possessed by Beelzebul. And then after that encounter, there's a return to Jesus sitting in the house with the crowd and his family is outside trying to get him. So there's the structure of the sandwich. But what we see in this story, in these stories today, it doesn't matter what the world says about Jesus. The question is for you and for me today. What will we do about the person of Jesus, no matter what the world says? So our, our big idea today is that the world's belief doesn't discredit the power and person of Christ. The world's disbelief doesn't discredit the power and person of Christ. So we'll look at the lunatic and liar accusations right now, and then after that, we'll look at Jesus Christ as Lord in the second half. So the lunatic and the liar. Here we have Jesus' family, his kinsmen, those close to him, those who share his bloodline, coming and accusing him of being a lunatic. Now this family, it's possibly his immediate family. Because in verse 31, when, we, when Mark returns to the story, we see it's his mother and his brothers. So it could be very, very likely his immediate family, but it could also be his distant family, and then later his immediate family shows up. We know his distant family's perspective on Jesus. If you look at when Jesus returns to Nazareth in Mark chapter 6, he says, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. And they did not receive him there in Nazareth. So his extended family certainly did not think too highly of him. It's interesting that those who are closest to him could be the most distant from him in their hearts. His family is as distant from the Savior as the world And so since they don't understand what he's about and they don't understand who he is, they can't help but call him a lunatic. This is not an attractive story. This is not an easy story. 
It doesn't paint our Savior or his family in a positive light, which gives us all the more reason to believe it's true. Nobody would make this up. It's not going to look good for those who are trying to convince others to follow Jesus. So then why would his family want to seize him? Why, are, why do they think he's crazy? Maybe they're overly familiar. They lived with him. They saw him working in the shop. They saw him walking down the road. They saw him in the temple, hearing him talk all the time about the things of heaven. Maybe they got tired of it. Maybe they don't like religious fanatics and they think Jesus is a fanatic. They say, shouldn't we just have a balance? Enough religion to get us into heaven, but not too much religion. It's a totally messed up approach to it. Or maybe they actually are concerned for his well-being because you see with the crowd pushing in, he and his disciples couldn't even eat. So maybe they're worried saying, we need to get him some food. We need to help him take care of himself. Turn it down a little bit. Come home and take care of yourself. Either way, it seems that they have forgotten his birth. That he was to be called Jesus, the one who would save his people from their sins. They forgot that he is Emmanuel, God with us. He's not going to look like a normal person. His mission is different. So we see in this accusation that he's a lunatic, that even the closest of his family and his people, he is being accused and he is disbelieved. And it reveals the hearts of those who may know him best. Sadly, their hearts are distant and hard and cold, at least at this point. And then Mark interrupts. And he puts in the middle part of the sandwich, the second story with the scribes. And here Jesus is being accused of being a liar. The scribes came down from Jerusalem. Apparently, word is getting around. They may have been sent as representatives to try to undermine Jesus' ministry. You'll remember just a few verses earlier in chapter 3, verse 6, the Pharisees and the Herodians had decided they are going to, to, to destroy Jesus. So very likely, this is an act trying to help destroy Jesus. They came to smear his reputation, to associate him with evil so that people would stop following him. In other words, it sounds like American politics. But they say he is associated with Beelzebul. It's not a common name. It's not one that we know a lot about, but we have two other descriptors of this Beelzebul in our passage. He's called the Prince of Demons. And then Jesus refers to him directly as Satan. When Jesus says, how can Satan cast out Satan? He's saying, you're calling me Beelzebul, the Prince of Demons, and I'm casting out myself. And he starts to call out their bad logic. He says, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And we see that Jesus is not only not on Satan's team, he is actively opposed to Satan and in perfect unity with the spirit. We need to pause for a second, figure out how crazy it is that the God man would be accused of being in league with Satan. What has Mark told us so far about Jesus? The very beginning of his ministry, when he was baptized, yeah, actually, even before he was baptized, John the Baptist said that there was another one coming and he was going to baptize in the Holy Spirit, not in Satan, not in the forces of evil. He's going to baptize in the Holy Spirit. And then at the beginning of Jesus's ministry, when he was being baptized, the Holy Spirit, God himself descended on Jesus in the form of his dove to begin his ministry as a symbol that his whole ministry is empowered by the Holy Spirit. 
And then immediately after that, the Holy Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness, and by the Spirit's power, Jesus was able to withstand the temptations of Satan. And then he proceeded to speak, to preach the gospel, to, to speak with authority in the temple. And then a man with a, with a demon came in and Jesus cast that demon out. It makes no sense that this man would be accused of being in league with Satan. He forgives sins. He gave, the, he gave the Sabbath to his people as blessed rest. These are just the things we've encountered in Mark so far. Jesus is ushering in the kingdom of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. So how out of line is it to accuse him of being in league with Beelzebul, calling him a liar, calling him a fake? We look at these accusations of Jesus being a lunatic and Jesus being a liar, and we have to reflect on our own lives and realize just because we're some kind of close to Jesus, through church, through school, doesn't mean that we have assurance. It doesn't mean that we, have, we can sneak ourselves into heaven. Look, these are his family and his own people, the Jewish people, accusing him of these things. Do not put your faith in false confidences. You can have assurance of salvation if your faith is in Jesus Christ. But if your faith is in the fact that you have attended church faithfully, you have false assurance. If your faith is in the fact that you are helping plant a church in Kent, your faith is in a false assurance. If you're in church leadership, if you've gone to Christian schools, if you have paid to send your kids to Christian schools, if you've known all the Bible stories your whole life, none of these are true confidences. These make us feel like family and think we're just close enough without actually having to trust Jesus. Any of these could be true of you, and you could be as distant as his family who calls him crazy. We have to assess our hearts and ask, do we personally trust Jesus to be our Savior and our salvation? I pray that we all do. And if you have not yet, put your faith in this Savior. And for those who have, we also have to ask, are we prepared for an onslaught of accusations as well? Because Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. It's not an if. He makes it quite clear. We should expect it. Jesus was building a spiritual kingdom, and the kingdom of the world did not like it. And so as we labor for this spiritual kingdom of heaven, the world is not going to like it. We have to remember... The way that God thinks is so much higher than the way humans think. Spiritual knowledge is so unattainable to the natural man. Yet God has given us, his people, his spirit that we might understand and that we might know. Paul talks in 1 Corinthians 1 quite often about this concept. He kind of hits it point by point. He says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And then he says a couple verses later, has God not made foolish the wisdom of this world? And then a few verses later, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. A stumbling block to Jews. We see the Jews stumbling in this very passage. His own family, the Jewish people stumbling over who he is. And Paul continues in 1 Corinthians 1, he says, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. 
The whole explanation comes here in 1 Corinthians 2. He says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. We should have pity for those who cannot understand, those who call Jesus crazy. They do not understand. Let's do what we can to show them who Jesus is, to tell them the truth about our Savior. Pray that the Spirit might open their hearts to know So we must choose not to join in with the world by calling Jesus crazy, by calling him a liar. Let us see him as he claims to be. He is the Lord. So let's consider now this Jesus as Lord. Reminder here, our big idea is that the world's disbelief doesn't discredit the power and person of Christ. So let's look at that power and person of Christ. Mark has been setting this up. He, he layers these accusations together for us so that we might not misunderstand the way they did. He wants his readers to understand as they witness so much misunderstanding. He wants us to see who Jesus is and as a result to believe in Jesus. So let's see who Jesus is here in this passage. In verse 27, Jesus tells us who he is. He says, I'm not the one in league with Satan because that would be a divided kingdom. He says in verse 27, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Satan is that strong man. Jesus is the one who binds him and plunders him. Jesus is the one, the Lord, who has so much more power than Satan himself. Satan is so powerful. Who could defeat him except God alone? And that's why Jesus can do it, because he is God. And the power of the Spirit at work within him is God. Satan doesn't stand a chance. So Jesus is binding him. And then Jesus will plunder him. Jesus plunders the strong man when he died and when he rose. Because then Satan lost all his power and he lost all his goods. And God... All the people that he promised to give to Jesus will come to him. Because what Jesus did on that cross, that was the power of plundering Satan. And Jesus has been working on it, even here in the book of Mark. Let's see. Jesus takes his people back. The man in chapter 1 who was possessed by demons, when Jesus cast out the demons because of his powerful preaching, that is a loss for Satan. When Jesus doesn't just heal the paralyzed man, but forgives his sins. It's a big loss for Satan. And then Jesus empowers, as we saw last week, he gives authority to the apostles to preach and with such power then to cast out demons. Every person who comes to know Christ as a result of their preaching is another loss for Satan and another loss for Satan and another loss for Satan. When you came to know Christ, that was a loss for Satan and that was a win for the kingdom because Jesus is plundering the strong man and getting his people back. It's cool that we get to be a part of that. That God would love us that much to bind the strong man and save us. And then when Jesus rose again on the third day, Satan's loss was sealed Yet, we look around us today and we see there's, it's, 
still tough. We still struggle. There's still sin. And I have to admit, yes, of course, we do still live in the presence of sin. But believers, we do not live in the power of sin. We have the power of the Spirit. This same Spirit who was empowering Jesus' ministry now lives in His people and you and me. And He will carry us to completion. And He will make us more like Christ. And on that last day, Satan will be conquered. He will be cast into the lake of fire for eternal torment where the smoke will be going up forever. It's an understatement to say that is a loss for Satan. Jesus plunders his people, but he also plunders the earth. Jesus promised to his covenant people that they would be given the promised land. And that, a chunk of land land in the Middle East, is simply a foreshadow of the entire world that is going to be given to Jesus' church. We are going to have the entire new creation because Christ is going to renew it and it also waits for the day when the sons of man are revealed and it will be made new. We also see who Jesus is, not just in that he binds the strong man and plunders the strong man, but we see that he is the one specifically who forgives sins. We see this in verses 28 through 30. It's amazing, the patience of our God. Here in verse 28, listen to what he says. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. As he is accused and accused, he says there is still forgiveness for you. And we know that happened for his family because of his brother James. His, James was, his brother James was forgiven. He became a strong um, an anchor for the church in Jerusalem. And he wrote the book of James that we find in scripture. Maybe he was one of the family here who first called him crazy, but then was forgiven once he saw who Jesus was. What a patient God to offer that forgiveness, even to those who accuse him. But how do we receive that forgiveness? It's by faith. It's by belief. This faith and this belief are set right here in verses 28, 29, and 30 in direct contrast to all the disbelief going on around it. The rampant disbelief that's going on. They've seen the Holy Spirit at work in Jesus. They see his ministry. They see the kingdom of God going forth and they don't like it. So they call it the work of Satan. They don't get it. They don't have faith. They're not a part of God's kingdom. Verse 29 mentions what some have called the unforgivable sin. And some people have lived in great fear because of this unforgivable sin. It says this, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. And the question has revolved around, what does it mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? Is it to say the right combination of words against the Holy Spirit? In fact, I had a friend in high school who in a bout of anger randomly cursed not the Father or the Son, but specifically the Holy Spirit. And so he thought that he was doomed to die in hell because he had blasphemed the Holy Spirit. And that's the one unforgivable sin, right? Let's try to understand blaspheming the Holy Spirit here in light of what's going on in this text. Actually, it's clarified for us specifically in verse 30. These around him are guilty of blaspheming the Holy Spirit, potentially, if they continue in it, because in verse 30 says, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. 
to say that Jesus Christ, the Son of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, has the, the, the Satan's power working underneath is to blaspheme the work of the Holy Spirit and the kingdom of God going forth. These people were watching the Holy Spirit at work. They were watching Jesus Christ expand the kingdom of God, and they said, that's satanic. That is blaspheming the Holy Spirit. That is refusing to submit to what God is doing, refusing to be a part of this kingdom that God is winning. It's a heart condition. It's a spiritual blindness that's rampant among Jesus' own people in this day and among the spiritual leaders and even among his own family. So let's not be afraid of uttering the magic words that give us a free pass to hell. Blaspheming the Holy Spirit is a much deeper thing. It's a consistent lack of faith in what God has done in Jesus Christ and calling his work Satan's work. So then who receives this forgiveness? Who are his true family and friends? Who are those who get to partake of this life and this forgiveness? In verses 34 and 35, in the last part of the sandwich here, we see it's those who sit with Jesus. Those who sit with Jesus. Jesus' family was standing outside and they were trying to get to him. And Jesus says, here's my family. Seems really rude. It sounds like he's downplaying his family, but actually, let let me say the opposite. To use family connection as the benchmark for a close relationship, in some senses, actually raises it to a higher level. For example, I've heard people try to say that LeBron James is a better basketball player than Michael Jordan. To make that comparison doesn't mean Michael Jordan is a bad basketball player, but instead it says he's the benchmark, he's the standard. So what Jesus is saying is not that your family relationships don't matter, He's saying they are important. In fact, he and the apostles continue to uh, emphasize the importance, not just in our actions, but also in our hearts to continue to honor our father and mother and to care for one another. That's the standard. But he says there's an even greater family now. There's a spiritual family. There are those who sit at the feet of Jesus and learn from him. Those who submit to him, those who see what he's doing and want to be a part of it who don't push back, who don't call him crazy, who have the eyes to see and the ears to hear, those who have faith. That creates the new family. Now, Jesus says it's those who do the will of God. These are my brother and sister and mother. He's not promoting a works salvation Instead, when we see people doing the will of God, we see evidence that that faith has taken root. We see evidence that there is trust in Jesus. We are saved by, excuse me, we are saved by grace. And it is through faith alone, but that faith is never alone. That faith always turns into fruit and into obedience. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. So what do we do then? We believe in this Lord. We put our faith in him. We realize this family is our true family. When the world calls Jesus a lunatic, remember that it is the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom, not the fear of academia. Fools despise this message. When the world calls him a liar, see the evidence of how he has pushed back the kingdom of darkness and has established forever the kingdom of light. When the world calls him a lunatic, don't stoop to their level of self-reliance disguised as false intelligence. 
Submit to this truth that we find in Scripture. Learn from it. Come to Scripture to be filled, not to dissect it or tear it apart. When the world calls him a liar, consider the trajectory of the father of lies. He will be defeated. His fate has been sealed. He has been bound, he has been plundered, and he will face eternal suffering. Because the spirit-filled, powerful life, death, and resurrection of this very God-man, Jesus, the Lord has won it. When you believe that, and then the world calls you a lunatic or a liar, let's consider that an honor. That we would be treated as Christ was treated. And let's pray for our accusers, that their eyes might be opened to see the truths of Jesus. And then let's stand firm on that Lord, who is greater than any worldly wisdom or any spiritual darkness. The world's disbelief will never discredit the power and the person of Christ.